Uh, as the reading said, we're reading from Jeremiah 7, um, which is about in the middle of the book or a little bit past it. If you're in Psalms, go a little bit further than that and you'll eventually find Jeremiah. All right, so starting from verse 1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah, who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you rarely change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this, home, in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words and that are worthless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe. Safe to do these detestable things? Has this house with, which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. Now go to the place of Silo, where I first made a dwelling for my name, and see what I did because of the wickedness of my people, Israel. While you were doing all these things, declares the Lord, I spoke to you again and again, but you did not listen. I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, what I did in Silo, I will now do to the house that bears my name, the temple you trust in, the place I give to you and your ancestors. I will thrust you from my presence, just as I did all you fellow Israelites, the people of Ephraim. So do not pray for these people, nor offer any plea or petition for them. Do not plead with me, for I will not listen to you. Do you not see that what they are doing in the towns of Judah, in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers light the fire, and the women knead the dough and make cakes to offer to the Queen of Heaven. They pour out drink offerings to other gods to arouse my anger. But I am the one. But am I the one that they are provoking, declares the Lord? Are they not rather harming themselves to their own shame? Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. My anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place, on man and beast, on the trees of the field and on the crops of your land, and it will burn and not be quenched. Keep that open in front of you. We'll be looking at that shortly. Uh, but before we get there, um, I want to tell you about my daughter's favourite game. <clears throat> She's currently three years old. She likes playing games. She hasn't learned how to be a responsible member of society just yet. Uh, but she is absolutely obsessed with hide-and-seek. Uh, every time I come home, she hides and I have to find her before we can continue on with the afternoon. Uh, and most times when there's a dull and kind of down moment in the family household, she insists on playing. And the thing that I've been quite amazed by her over the years that she's grown is she has found a winning strategy for this game. And the only way I can really demonstrate this to you is to show it to you. So we're going to play. I need you all to close your eyes and I'm going to hide... Okay, so I need you all to close your eyes. Close them, don't worry, nobody's going to pickpocket and take your wallets or anything. Close your eyes, okay, I'm going to hide, all right? Are you guys counting? It doesn't work if you're not counting. Are you going to count to ten? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Ready? <laughs> all right, I'm ready. Let me know when you're counting. Where's the I didn't anticipate somebody would be videoing. That's very embarrassing. Let me tell you one thing. If you ever want to feel good about yourself, 
play hide and seek with a three-year-old. You will always win. I didn't know I was the best seeker in the world until I started playing with my daughter. My daughter has hid on the top of every exposed surface on our house. Her strategy, close your eyes, lay very still, and if you're absolutely still, then nobody can see you. Now, it's adorable. We've got pictures, we've got videos. Some of you have seen those videos. But it's a losing strategy, isn't it? You would never play the game with that strategy. And yet in today's passage, that is the losing strategy we see in the life of Judah. Because the nation of Judah has been playing hide and seek. It's not spiritual, and not physical hide and seek, but it's spiritual hide and seek. And the thing that they're trying to hide from is God, specifically God's judgment. And I would have thought that of all the things that you want to get right in a book like Jeremiah, which is a book about God's judgment, is how to avoid God's judgment. And yet they get it wrong. And so today is all about what Judah got wrong and how we can avoid the same mistake. We're playing hide and seek and hopefully we won't get found. But first of all, before we kind of launch into that, we need to spend a bit of time locating ourselves um, in the book of Jeremiah. Uh, if you remember, we're doing a You Are Here section at the very beginning of every talk, uh, looking at ourselves in history and in the book. And this is where we are in history. Uh, you are here, somewhere in the first 23 years of Jeremiah's ministry. Uh, how do we know that? Well, when we look at the big book of Jeremiah, it's 52 chapters. The first 24 chapters are largely undated. But once we get to the beginning of chapter 25 and dates are kind of given to us, Jeremiah says this. For 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, son of Amon, king of Judah, until this very day, the word of the Lord has come to me and I've spoken to you again and again, but you have not listened and this is the moment in the book that gives us a point of reference for where we are in terms of history. We can't really discern whereabouts in that 23 years, but we know that we're in the first half of his ministry. And when Jeremiah does this in chapter 25, he also tells us where we are in the book. We're in the first major section of the book. Now, because chapters 2 to 24, they're a collection of Jeremiah's words spoken to the nation during the first half of his ministry. And the thing that we see in the first movement of Jeremiah is the thing we've got up here on the screen. The word of God announces the destruction of Judah. That's what it's about. It's not chronological. It's just a whole bunch of themes built together to build to that one big activity. The word of God declaring the destruction of Judah. And we were introduced to it in chapter one with the word and the one who would speak it. And then last time in week two, we saw in chapters two to six that that judgment was declared on the nation and it was done so from the perspective of a betrayed husband. God framed his judgment so that we would see that what we're talking about here is a betrayal of the worst kind. And from this point on, what we'll see for the rest of that big blank bar, that grey bar, um, is the word of God systematically dismantle the nation. It's going to take everything that defines Judah, everything that Judah holds dear, everything that Judah hides behind... And it's going to be systematically and completely destroyed. And so chapter 7 to 10, that's where we are today. And the word of God targets a particular hiding place of Judah. And that's its misplaced confidence in the temple of the Lord. And so with that in mind, you've got your outlines in front of you. Let's have a look at heading number one, Judah's misplaced confidence. And have a look first at Judah's hiding place. Uh, let's have a look at the beginning of chapter 7. And we'll start in verse 2. 
God says to Jeremiah, stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah, who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Reform your ways and your actions and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. So Jeremiah is to preach a sermon and he's to do it at the entrance of the temple. This is the centre of Jewish life and Jewish religion. And as people file in to make their sacrifices and to worship the Lord, Jeremiah is saying to them, guys, guys, I don't think this is a good idea. And he explains to them why that's the case in verse 9. Chapter 7, he says, Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury? That's lying under oath. Burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known. And then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name, and say, We are safe. Safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. So what's the problem? They thought that because they had the temple of the Lord, they had an unassailable refuge from the judgment of God. And if you look there, Jeremiah uses the image of a den of robbers. This, this is like the, the thieves' cave in Aladdin. You kind of go out, you do all of your bad stuff and, and you steal everything. And then you come back to the cave and you kind of lay low and hide there until people stop looking for you. You're safe, fantastic. And then you go out again and you do all the more bad things. And this is what's happening for the people of Judah. And the temple for them was that cave. And their thinking sort of went like this. Look, I can steal, I can murder, I can commit adultery, I can worship other gods. And so long as I go back to the temple and make my sacrifices, then I'll appease God and I'll be safe. And the point of Jeremiah's sermon as they walk into the temple and as he warns them is to tell them that their hiding place is no good. And so he says to them there in verse 8, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. If you think this way, then you've deceived yourself and your confidence is misplaced. You will be found. Now, what had gone wrong? Well, God tells us in verse 21 of chapter 7. This is just at the end of our reading. Verse 21, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Go ahead, add your burnt offerings to your other sacrifices and eat the meat yourselves. For when I brought your ancestors out of Egypt and spoke to them, I did not just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices. And the language here is actually stronger than that. It doesn't use the word just. It literally just reads, I did not command you about burnt offerings and sacrifices. He did, but that came later. What did he give them at the beginning? We see there in verse 23. I gave them this command. Obey me. And if you do that, I'll be your God, you'll be my people. Walk in obedience to all I command you, that it may go well with you. And the event he's referring to here is in Exodus chapter 19 and 20, where he gives Israel the Ten Commandments fresh off Mount Sinai. And his point here is that the provision of the sacrificial system came later for when Israel might fail to obey God. But God says to him, the whole point of our relationship, the foundation upon which it was built is that you would listen to me, that you would do what I told you to do so that you might actually enjoy blessing. But you're not using the sacrifice as a means of grace for when you fail. You're using them as permission to do what you want to do. 
And I know that this is the case because of how you're living. And then he accuses Judah, and you actually see this in the chapter that, that got read. He accuses them according to the Ten Commandments. So have a look over at chapter 7, verse 9 again. Will you steal, commit adultery and perjury, murder? That's commands 6, 7, 8, and 9. Now, will you burn incense to Baal, follow other gods you have, no, have, have not known? Well, that's commands 1 and 2. And Jeremiah's point here is, is, is obvious. At the heart of the relationship between God and his people were the Ten Commandments. This is the way that he would have them live. This is how you lived as the people of God. And, the, and Judah, the nation of Judah, was not living as the people of God. Uh, the first four commandments are about loving God. The second, uh, second kind of lot, the last six, are commands about loving others. And Judah had failed to do both. They'd committed idolatry and failed to love God. And they'd committed injustice against the fatherless, the widow, and, and had oppressed them. And in doing so, they'd failed to love others. And this wasn't a mistake. They knew what they were doing. And now they're hiding in the temple, really still, with their eyes closed, thinking that they're safe. And God says to them at the end of verse 11, you think that no one can see you, but I can see you. In fact, I had my camera out videoing you and now it's up on YouTube. <laughs> Bad. You might as well have been hiding like a three-year-old. And if you don't amend your ways, then I will bring my house down on top of you. Now, it's tempting as we hear all of that to kind of think, well, Judah was being silly, right? Silly three-year-old. But the reality is that we hide like Judah too. And it's just as unsophisticated and it's just as stupid. We presume on the grace of God. The only difference, I think, is we don't have a temple. We don't have a physical hiding place. We have Jesus, the one to whom the, the temple sacrifices pointed to. Uh, and the way that we hide sort of goes like this. Uh, because the thing we understand... The Bible, the message of the Bible, the gospel that Jesus preached is phenomenal. It says to each and every one of us, if you come to the Lord Jesus in for, and, and in repentance and you place your face in him and, and, and you submit yourself and your life to him, you will be forgiven of anything, everything. What really? Like, like surely just like the small bits and not like the, the big things. Anything. Anything at all, anything that you've done, past, present, future, that is evil, wrong in the eyes of the Lord, whether it's great or small, a continued sin or a one-off, whatever it is, if you come to the Lord Jesus, you will always be accepted. It is the best hiding place in the world from the judgment of God. And it's the means by which God restores us to a relationship with himself. And so it is good news for the sinners. But, 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 but once we understand just the magnitude of what that means, just the, the vast scope of, of God's forgiveness, the cogs start to turn, don't they? Hang on a minute. Anything? So you mean to tell me that if, if I do anything at all, God will forgive me? Well, hang on a minute. That means that I can do whatever the heck I want and God will forgive me. And if you get to that point in your thinking that God's forgiveness in Jesus gives you permission to live however you want, then it actually calls into question whether or not your faith is genuine and whether or not Jesus is truly your Lord and whether or not you've actually hidden from the judgment of God. And so like Judah, it is entirely possible to think that you are safe when you are not. Uh, one of the most sobering things that Jesus ever said was in Matthew chapter 7, 
And he said this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Key phrase, but only the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles and you could continue and in your name attend church and in your name serve at the CU and, and in your name do this and that. And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. It's like the three-year-old suddenly becomes the 23-year-old and he actually realises how stupid and silly you actually were. And so even though we are saved by grace through faith, if the receiving of that grace does not manifest into a changed life that seeks to do the will of the Father, then I want to suggest that perhaps just maybe you're as deceived as Judah was. And so it's worthwhile asking the question at this juncture in the talk, how do you treat the grace of God? Do you see it as permission to sin or as a provision, a God-given gracious provision for sin? Because the answer to that question will be the difference between the worst and the best hiding place you have from the judgment of God. Now, if that's rhetoric of cage, I hope it does. We want to not presume on the grace of God. We want to rest in it. We want to know that whenever we fail to obey our Lord, we can come to him and we'll always be forgiven. But there's something in our hearts, perhaps in your heart, that actually makes you kind of go, well, actually, I'm going to keep being the ruler and I'm going to obey my will and I'm just going to just rely on Jesus and let him enable my disobedience. And that's not Christianity. That's not true salvation. That's something that we all need to be on our guard against. And one way to, to kind of help us answer that question and work out which way we view the grace of God is to keep reading through chapter 7 to 10. Because as we do, one of the things we see is that God reveals to Judah why their confidence was misplaced. In other words, he tells them that there is an underlying problem. And we see this in our second heading for today's talk. And it's this. Their underlying problem was that they thought that they knew better. We see it in chapter 7, verse 24, continuing on from where we read just before. But they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubborn inclinations of their evil hearts. They went backward and not forward. Now, when I was an engineer, I worked at a particular company that was trying to sort out a whole bunch of issues, pretty dysfunctional, uh, and particularly their manufacturing process. And what they did is they brought in a consultant and they paid him oodles and oodles of money to tell them what they were doing wrong so that they could change, become more efficient, become more profitable. And I sat in the room as the consultant told them all the different things that they needed to do. And they were great. The list was very comprehensive. They were ways to go forward. But after he left in the subsequent meetings, which I sat in on, each one of his recommendations was disagreed with and then was never implemented. And the company went backwards. And that's what's happening here. The God who made them, the God who called them into an exclusive relationship with himself, who gave them counsel about how they were to live in his world and his people and receive his blessing and, and, and goodness. And as soon as he walks out of the room, Judah goes, well, that was a stupid idea, wasn't it? That'll never work. I've got a better one. Let's do what I think we should do. They thought that they knew better. Here's how God describes this in chapter 8, verse 4. If you want to flip over there, chapter 8, verse 4. He said, say to them, this is what the Lord says. When people fall down, do they not get up? 
When someone turns away, do they not return? Why then have these people turned away? Why does Jerusalem always turn away? They cling to deceit. They refuse to return. I have listened attentively, but they did not say what is right. None of them repent of their wickedness, saying, What have I done? Each pursues their own course like a horse charging into battle. Even the stork in the sky knows her appointed seasons, and the dove, the swift, and the thrush observe the time of their migration. But my people do not know the requirements of the Lord. Have you ever wondered why cat videos are so funny? It's because there is something built into the nature of a cat, which means they always land on their feet. Just saw in verse 7, doves migrate, cats, they land. And when they don't, it is so unnatural that we go and make video compilations of them and put them up on YouTube because it's just so, so hilarious. But God says here's something else that's unnatural. The people of God not knowing the requirements of God. And this isn't funny, this is tragic. Because it's not an accident. It's not like the the cat kind of just jumped and they slipped on a rug and then flipped over the safety gate and then kind of fell into the bin. This is a conscious choice of an evil heart. Judah broke with nature, broke with reality, and they put themselves in the bin because they thought that they knew better. And here's what happens when you stop listening to God's voice and start listening to your own. You deceive yourself. And your understanding of your own reality becomes warped. And this is what happens for Judah. Look, have, a, have a look at, at chapter 8, verse 11. Uh, it says, they, this is the leaders of Judah, they dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Are they ashamed of their detestable conduct? No, they have no shame at all. They do not even know how to blush. So they will fall among the fallen. They will be brought down when they are punished, says the Lord. You see, at this point, Judah's not even hiding anymore. They don't think the game's happening. They don't think that anything is wrong. They're proclaiming peace, peace. There's no judgment. We're completely fine. And they think that, think that wrongly, completely misdiagnose the situation because they stopped listening to God and started listening to their own stubborn inclinations in their hearts. They thought that they knew better. Now, as we keep reading through the section, we'll kind of skim through chapter 9 and head towards chapter 10, uh, because the moment that you stop listening to God is the moment that you lose all access to wisdom. And the place that you see this most clearly is in the practice of idolatry. Uh, The practice of idolatry, you create an idol that you bow down and worship. And the reason that it's just dumb is because idols are dumb, like literally dumb. They can't speak. Uh, They have nothing to say. And one of the things, if you read chapter 7 all the way through to chapter 10, is one of the key things that Judah keeps doing is they keep worshipping idols. And what they become for us in this section is sort of like an ironic mirror to kind of reflect back Judah's stupidity in their rebellion against God. And so to see it, let's have a look at chapter 10, verse 2. This is what the Lord says, chapter 10, verse 2. Do not learn the ways of the nations or be terrified by signs in the heavens, though the nations are terrified by them, for the practices of the peoples are worthless. Now, why is that the case? Let's keep reading. They cut a tree out of the forest. A craftsman shapes it with his chisel. They adorn it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it will not totter. And then like a scarecrow in a cucumber field, it just sits there. Their idols can't speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them. They can do no harm, nor can they do any good. Uh, To kind of put this into your language, an idol is basically an NPC. You, you, You can dress it up, 
move it around, hit it with a car, you're going to put it in a box, do whatever you want with it, but it affects nothing in your world. Compare that to God, verse 6 of chapter 10. No one is like you, Lord. You are great, and your name is mighty in power. Who should not fear you, king of the nations? This is your due among all the wise leaders of the nations, and in all their kingdoms there is none like you. And so as soon as you choose idols over God, here's the prognosis. Have a look at verse 8. They, the ones who worship these things, are all senseless and foolish. They are taught by worthless wooden idols. Literally, the instructions of idols is but wood. And I I can't help but not think of Groot at this point. All he says is, I am Groot. And you watch the movies and and everyone thinks he's saying all of these kind of things, but he's just saying the same three words. Has anyone else seen this? Have they worked this out? Is is this just, you know, my revelation? I am Groot. I am, that's all he says. What's he saying? Like loosely translated, I am wood. I am wood. And, And if all you listen to is I am wood, then you become senseless and foolish. And that's because the only words that an idol can speak into your life are the words that you put in their mouth. Because idols are like mirrors. All they do is reflect your own foolishness and your own warped sense of reality. Now, it's easy to look at the practice of idolatry as something archaic and dumb and just go, that's ridiculous. But let's not be too quick to judge Because what's true for Judah is also true for us, isn't it? We think we know better too. And we have our own idols. I brought one here today. This is Barbie. (laughs) She is a divisive idol. Not everybody worships her. But if the recent movie tells us anything, who she is, what she embodies, has profoundly shaped the Western world how it understands itself, Uh, and in the movie what happens is she's given a voice. We put words in her mouth, and the voice reflects what she sees in our world and what she thinks is wrong with the world and ultimately what she thinks will save the world. And do you want to know what her uh, solutions are? I think as you read the movie, very confusing towards the end, but this is what I tried to pull out of at the end, that there are two things. You are enough and define yourself. The only way that you can find peace and happiness in this world is to stop letting others define you and instead define yourself. And you want to merge the two together? You are enough for those who are in the know. And do you want to know what I find really fascinating about those two things? They are precisely the two things that Jeremiah condemns in these chapters. Let's take a look at the, the second one first. Define yourself apart from other relationships. And that's exactly what Judah did. They looked at their relationship with God and they went, "Uh uh-uh, I know better. I'm going to follow the stubborn counsel of my own heart. I'll make it on my own. And there's this amazing line at the end of the movie, and if I'm spoiling for well, you know I'm spoiling for it. It's very funny. Just go and watch it, whatever. Um, The Barbie meets her maker and she says to the maker, I want to be the one that creates meaning. And her maker goes, sounds like a great idea. And God says, that's dumb. (laughs) Don't do that. I didn't make you to do your own thing. You're not capable. Like, you can't even freestand. Like, you're just, just going to fall over. I made you as a creature to be a creature. And it's only when you live as a creature with me as your God that you will move forward and not backward. 
The problems that you encounter systematically in the world, individually as a person, those are real problems. The movie identifies them. But they're only going to be resolved if you put yourself under my care. What about the first one? You are enough. Well, God says you aren't enough. Things aren't okay. And I'm not talking about you know, your desire to have a career and a family and fulfill all your dreams before you turn 25. That's Barbie's problem. I'm talking about your sin. Here is Barbie, the modern prophet, and she is dressing the wound of the world as though it were not serious, saying, peace, peace, you are enough. But God says, there is no peace. You are anything but enough. What you need is Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong at this point. I don't want to hate on the movie. It's a very, very good movie, and it raises real issues that we all confront and we all struggle with. And I also don't want to hate on Greta Gerwig, the woman who wrote it. She's not some kind of crazy Satanist in a, in a basement somewhere stabbing voodoo dolls. That, that, that's not who she is. She is an intelligent, talented, and genuine person. If I could put it like this, she is one of the best of us. Because she took a kid's doll that boys were scared to touch when I was growing up and she turned it into a movie that earned a billion dollars that even my dad, who's 70 years old, has seen. Right? <laughs> that, that is a remarkable achievement. But, but here's my point. This is the best we can do. The most successful and intelligent among us and the best solution that we can come up with is a reheated version of the thing that got us into this mess in the first place. We don't know what we're doing. And it's why Jeremiah concludes chapter 10 in verse 23 by saying this, and this is from the ESV, uh, but you can look at it along if you've got the NIV in front of you. I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps, because we don't have the goods. We are not good enough. We are incapable of determining meaning and finding purpose and fulfilment according to our own counsel. And if we try... As we've seen in the case of Judah, it doesn't end well for us. Instead of prospering under the direction of the God who made us and loves us, we earn his judgment and we incite his wrath because we didn't listen and we thought that we knew better. So what do we do? Well, we turn to the only hiding place that we have from God's judgment, which is Jesus. We repent of thinking that we know better and we start listening to the one who actually knows better. In chapter 9, verse 23, uh, God says this. This is what the Lord says, chapter 9, verse 23. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches. Distrust yourself and the confidence that you bring to life, essentially is what it's saying. If the best of us can't work it out, then you can't work it out either. Instead, what are we to boast in? Well, let's keep reading. The next verse tells us, verse 24, but let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight. How do you know God? How do you put yourself in relationship to that God? How do you do it in such a way that you don't depend on yourself and your canuffness? How do you do it in such a way that you don't place trust uh, anywhere? But well, you just stop trusting your own wisdom. You stop trusting in your presumptuous hiding places. Instead, you humble your heart. You come before God and say, I don't actually get it. I thought I knew better, but I don't. And what I need is you. 
I need the forgiveness that Jesus gives me. I need the direction that he gives me that I might be found in relationship with you and be granted blessing and life, not just for this one, but eternally in the next. You place your trust not in your own wisdom, not in your own thinking, but in Jesus, the only true hiding place that we have from the coming wrath of God. And so you conform your walk to his words, your life to his leading, because when you do that, and only when you do that, you will find peace. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, uh, whether we have committed ourselves to the Lord Jesus or not, we confess that we are perpetually seeking after our own wisdom and counsel rather than yours. Help us to embrace your word of warning in this passage, uh, to know it to be true reality, and help us to respond to it in a way that Judah didn't. Help us not to be foolish and childish in hiding, but instead find the refuge in the Saviour Jesus that you have provided for us. Give us eyes to see where we boast in ourselves, in, in our world. Uh, dismantle our thinking until we can build it back up based on the truthful words that you speak to us in love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.